everyone, and welcome to the Science AAA's webinar. I'm Sean Sanders, Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science. And uh, I, it's, I'm very pleased to welcome you to today's event. Uh, this is the first webinar for 2020 in our Science and Life webinar series, in which we delve into important and timely topics that impact our daily lives uh, with a particular focus on the sciences. If you'd like to watch any of the other webinars in our series, you can find them at webinar.sciencemag.org. We're going to take a more positive look at the coronavirus pandemic today. Uh, we hope that the knowledge shared by our guests will help you better understand what the virus is and how it works, as well as learn about biological resistance, psychological resilience, and how we can adapt and are adapting to a life with the novel coronavirus. I'm delighted today to have Sciences Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Holden Thorpe, moderating the discussion. Uh, finally, I'd like to thank Foundation Ibsen for sponsoring today's event and this series. Now, it's my pleasure to hand over control to Dr. Thorpe, who will introduce you to today's speakers. Thank you, Sean, and thanks to everyone who's joining us for this very important uh, discussion and to our uh, superb panel who has uh, joined us. I want to introduce them and then uh, begin the discussion. We have with us Dr. Laurie Santos. She is professor of psychology and head of Silliman College at Yale University. She's an expert on human cognition and the cognitive biases that impede better choices. And she hosts a new podcast called The Happiness Lab with Pushkin Industries. Uh, Dr. Santos will be with us for uh, um, a good part of the beginning of this, but uh, she may have to drop off. So we'll try to get some of her questions to her uh, at the beginning if we can. Uh, Dr. Arnold Fontanet is a medical epidemiologist specializing in infectious disease epidemiology. He worked at the World Health Organization from 1993 to 2001 before joining Institute Pasteur to launch the Emerging Diseases Epidemiology Unit where he has worked on emerging infections such as SARS and MERS. And he was appointed director of the newly created Pasteur Center for Global Health Research and Education. Thank you, Arno, for joining us. And Dr. Mark Lipsitch is a professor of epidemiology with a primary appointment in the Department of Epidemiology at the Harvard University T.H. Chan School of Public Health and a joint appointment in the Department of Immunology and Infectious Diseases. He directs the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics and is, is the Associate Director of the Interdisciplinary Concentration in Infectious Disease Epidemiology. Uh, many of you have been seeing Mark uh, in the news. We published a paper from his group on Tuesday that uh, I think uh, looks like it'll probably be the most viewed paper maybe we've ever published in the first uh, few days. So I guess I'll start with uh, Mark and then Arno just to give us briefly kind of your assessment of um, of where we are with the virus and um, you know what uh, looks like it lies ahead. Uh, and if you'll kind of just quickly tell us that, then we'll go to Lori and let uh, let her advise us on some of the things that we should be thinking about as we prepare for this. So Mark, we'll we'll go to you first. I think we need, you're on mute. Thank you, and thanks for the opportunity to be here. Um, so my perception is that we are, uh, as Churchill put it, at the end of the beginning um, of this pandemic. 
um, in many parts of the world. And I think everything has to be hedged with, with two qualifiers. One is we think because the data are not complete yet. Um, and the other is uh, that, that things are different in different parts of the world. So I'm going to uh, refer to the United States for now and we can, we can uh, move more globally later and maybe Arnaud will, will do that anyway. Um, so I think we're sort of at the end of the beginning in the sense that uh, we are <clears throat> we are now all experiencing uh, a form of social distancing that that is unprecedented in most of our lives, uh, except for the 107 year old who was on the radio uh, yesterday describing their memories of uh, 1918. But for most of us, this is really new territory, um, and uh, without quite endorsing our president's statement that we have reached the peak. Uh, I think there are signs in some parts of the country and in some parts uh, of the world that that the first intense wave is at least beginning to crest, if not if not quite there. Uh, and there, there, there really are serious data limitations that we could talk about later. Um, but that seems to be uh, a possible description of what's going on. Um, the, the issue is that now we have to figure out what the next uh, step is. Um, and the best understanding at this point is that most of the population remains susceptible, even in the hardest hit areas uh, like New York City in this country and, and Northern Italy and other places. Um, and so if that's true, if even with this big first wave, we're still mostly susceptible, it means that uh, rebounds in the virus transmission are likely as social distancing is led up and other control measures are led up. Um, and so I think the, the national and the indeed the global conversation has to be about identifying ways to return to some features of normal life that are most important to us economically, psychologically, educationally, and socially, among other things, uh, while trying to keep the virus under control with the primary goals of reducing total morbidity and mortality, delaying those uh, two points where we may have a vaccine or better treatments, um, and trying to protect the healthcare system, specifically the intensive care units. Yeah, great. Arnaud? Well, thank you very much for inviting me here. And um, I fully share the views expressed by, by Bark. Uh, France has had a a peculiar situation where we had two um, attempts of introduction of the virus, first times end of January and later beginning of February, which were pretty well controlled. I mean, we were able to identify quickly the case, isolate them. We done hundreds of PCR on their contacts and none were positive. And we had those people repatriated from Wuhan, no PCR positive, you know, they were in isolation for, for some time. And we felt like after all this virus, you know, it's maybe not that transmissible. Uh, what happened in China, maybe they started too late. And, um, and at the time they tried to control, um, well, they just could not make it anymore. And maybe the density of population in China, the nature of contacts was different. And that's what explains that epidemic. But here in France, it seems we are able to manage it. And all collapsed in the last week of February, where we had at the same time, um, a teacher dying in one hospital in Paris, which revealed an unknown cluster which had developed in the city where he was uh, living. And then we had the relig religious event in the eastern part of France, 2,500 people 
packed together during one week, out of which a huge number of people got infected and then moved to other parts of France. And then we had some people arriving from Italy and some people arriving from other countries and all that together in the last week of February, first week of March. And we saw a first wave of patients arriving in intensive care units, which were the people older than 80 years of age with very rapidly progressive forms of disease. And some of my colleagues were still saying, well, you see, it's like flu. I mean, people older than 80 die. It's a sad story, but after all, it's just going to be another epidemic like flu. And then a week later, we saw arriving, and here we are 6th, 7th of March, a new generation of patients in intensive care unit, young people with this very inflammatory pneumonia of the day 7-9, where um, with for some of them, some comorbidities like uh, uh, overweight, um, high blood pressure, diabetes. And that is what has now kept us busy for the last month. Uh, what happened is that we put in place a confinement uh, in France, which was declared on March 17. We are now one month later. And for one week, we can say that we have seen very positive signs where, and I think yesterday, the number of new calls to the emergency numbers for suspicion of COVID went down to a level that we had not seen for months. And, um, and we do see now really the epidemic receding. So uh, exactly as Mark was saying, now we are thinking of how are we going to go out of it? And our president last Monday declared that it's going to be May 11. It's going to be very progressive. Um, but we are now considering how can we go back, as Mark was saying, to some sort of normal social economic life, um, keeping a very strong pressure on that virus, because we know that if you give it a bit of, of, of space, it can really spread extremely fast. And uh, that's probably part of the discussion we will continue to have for, for this webinar. Yep, great. So, Laurie, it's, uh, there's, there's a little bit of optimism here, but uh, still a very challenging situation. And uh, we're going to be asking people to change their behavior in, in really significant ways. Um, and so tell us a little bit about what your research uh, shows in terms of, you know, how people will be thinking about uh, the kinds of information that uh, they're getting and the kinds of changes they'll have to make and, you know, what we can do to help people, you know, leverage the best ideas for the future. Yeah, well, I think, you know, the, the first part to start is that you're still on. There you go. Hey, so this is the, the first part to start, I think, is that uh, can you guys hear me yet? Yes. Um, the first area yeah. to start, I think, is that. Uh, first to just validate the fact that this is an incredibly challenging time than sort of understanding the dynamics of this disease in terms of our bodies. But it's also an incredibly challenging time for our mental health. Um, and I think it's particularly challenging because I think, you know, most of us know what we need to be doing in terms of our, our physical health right now. We need to be socially distancing and washing our hands. But a lot of us are feeling panicked and anxious and uncertain. And I think folks have less agency about what they can do for their mental health. I know a lot of folks are trying to figure out, you know, I, I'm feeling panicked and anxious, kind of what can I do? Um, the good news is I think just as we know the kinds of things we can do to, to prevent the transmission of this disease as much as possible, I think we know the kinds of things we can do scientifically to calm our minds down, to decrease panic, to deal better with uncertainty and so on. And I think we'll kind of go through some of those, but I think the, the good news is that even though this is a huge challenge for our mental health, there are strategies we can all employ to feel a little bit better. Yeah, and so what are some of those strategies? 
Yeah, well, one of them is really to kind of work on the sort of anxiety and panic that many of us are feeling right now. Um, the you know we have this system in our body that's really good at dealing with threats, part of our anaerobic nervous system known as the sympathetic nervous system. That's our fight or flight response. Um, but the fight or flight response works best for a kind of temporary threat. You know, that lion that jumps out of the forest to attack you. That's what it's meant for. It's going to turn it on fast and then shut it off when the threat is gone. Uh, sympathetic nervous system is not so great with chronic stresses like coronavirus. And if anything, we've learned it's that this is, you know, a marathon, not a sprint. And so we need ways to kind of regulate that sympathetic nervous system, even though we can't shut off the, the physical threat that is coronavirus. And so one way we can regulate our sympathetic nervous systems is just through our breath. Um, this, this can kind of annoy people, you know, sometimes when you're really hyped up and somebody says, hey, just take a deep breath and calm down, it can feel kind of pedantic. But actually, the act of taking a deep breath activates our vagus nerve, which is our, our pathway, our conscious pathway into the parasympathetic nervous system. That's the other part of the autonomic nervous system, the sort of rest and digest system. The act of taking a really slow, deep breath, especially a deep breath that we pull into our bellies, it activates the system and kind of convinces our body like, hang on, you know, we don't need to be panicked anymore. There's no lion. We're breathing really deeply. We're not running away. Let me kind of take a break. And that's essential for reducing things like our anxious symptoms, the physical symptoms that come with anxiety, sort of tight chest, you know, muscle aches and so on. But it's also really essential for our immune function, you know, kind of keeping your sympathetic nervous system on hyperdrive is not a great way to make sure the rest of your body is getting what it needs. And so in order to protect your immune system, protect your digestion, finding ways to sort of shut off the sympathetic nervous system is really powerful. The second tip I'd give though, is that uh, we need to kind of come to terms with the fact that this is gonna feel like a yucky situation for a while. And what we know from the science of resilience is that part of resilience is trying to identify the kinds of things you can control and the kinds of things you can't, you know, this deep wisdom of what you can actually take agency on. And the honest thing is that there's a lot we can take agency on right now, even though this virus is out of control. You know, we can't stop the virus. We can't stop the uncertainty of how it's going to go, you know, once we stop socially distancing and how long it's going to last. But there's all kinds of things we can take agency on. So, for example, our healthy habits, things like, you know, our sleep at night, you know, making sure you're instituting proper sleep hygiene. Um, exercise, another big booster for our mental health. Um, sometimes when we get out of our routine, that's a thing that falls by the wayside. But this is a time when your bodies need that more than ever. Um, and then really just simple things like healthy eating and so on, like being mindful of these habits that we know can make our bodies feel better can be incredibly powerful in this time of uncertainty. Yep, great, thanks. So Mark, I saw, speaking of exercise, uh, that you... Um, you tweeted uh, that you supported keeping the parks open. Um, so what kind of dangers are there to be outside if you're exercising and uh, you know, what should people be doing so that they can follow Lori's advice and uh, get some exercise to, to improve their mental health? And uh, maybe then both of you can talk about what that does for uh, the immune system as well. Uh, sure, I think Outside as inside, it's important to keep at a distance. Uh, there, the the concerns for transmission are uh, are not just physical distance, but also airflow and um, uh, or lack thereof. So, being outside by itself means that for any particular exposure, it's more likely to be blown away from you than if you're um, in a in a close quarters with uh, with the other person without good ventilation. So, um, so the first thing is to say that outdoors is you know 
intrinsically somewhat safer. If, you, if you're up in someone's face and they sneeze on you, they can still transmit to you outdoors just as indoors. But, um, but the, the, the first thing is just to, to behave as you would indoors, but, uh, but get outside uh, and, and keep your distance and, and get exercise. There's not a whole lot more to say about that, uh, I think. Um, uh, and, you know, we wrote a, some colleagues and I wrote a piece that was in the Washington Post a few days ago about this. And there are parks that are being closed because people are, uh, are really not following those rules. So it, it really is one of those things where collective punishment happens. If a few of us violate the rules, the parks uh, risk being closed. And so it really is kind of a uh, incumbent on everybody to wear a mask, be out, be at a distance and behave the way you would in a supermarket. And then nobody can say that a, that a park is an unsafe place. Yeah. And Arnaud, how is that being managed in France? Well, France, it has been um, a couple of things. I mean, the uh, problem is that we have had an incredible weather since the beginning of this confinement. I don't know what it is in the States, but we never had such a nice month of um, end of March and April. So everybody wants to get out and we can't. Um, we were allowed at the beginning to go for exercising about one hour and you were not allowed to go, then they had to restrict the distance you could do. So now we are only allowed to go for at not more than one kilometer from our home. And now we are told that we can no longer uh, do jogging, for instance, um, uh, between 10 a.m. and 7 p.m. And what happens then is that all the joggers meet mm -hmm. after 7 p.m. and they realize and all the media were here filming them being crowded and spitting on each other when they were jogging. So we had a bit of difficulties to, to, to handle all that. Um, I think there is some form of regulation here which is taking place. So people now are adjusting and trying to make it a, a better use of it. But um, one point which I wanted to, to raise about the psychological uh, issues related to the confinement is that I think what was important for France is, as I was just mentioning, we are at one month now. But our president came on TV a couple of days ago and said, well, the confinement will stop on May 11. And a lot of people, you know, were, I think, suffering a lot from not knowing when it would end. And I have to say that uh, we were a little bit surprised about this announcement, you know, and um, I'm part of a group advising the, the government about how to handle uh, the crisis currently. Uh, we work separately for them. We give advice. They make decisions, which is the way it should go. But I would say that this decision from the president came a little bit out of the blue. Still, I think one big benefit of it is that in the mind of people now, first of all, they understand that the confinement has worked because we gave figures which show that there is a real effect on the transmission of virus. And we say it's because it works, you have to continue. But also psychologically, knowing that there is a, an end to it, although we explain that it doesn't mean we will return to normal life, may have, I think, a beneficial effect. And I would be happy to have your comment on it, you know, and uh, how that can influence your way of living through a confinement. Sure, Laurie. Yeah, I mean, I think I think one of the biggest problems with this situation is that it's so uncertain, right? So even having some some form of certainty, you know, you can get out on May X, Y, or Z, even if that's going to change, can kind of give people this sort of false sense of hope. 
Um, the good news, though, is that there are techniques, even if we don't really have a certain date when we can start coming outside, I think that's not necessarily the case in all places. Even if we don't have any certainty, there are techniques we can use to kind of be with the uncertainty and kind of make it okay. Um, and one of the ones that's received a lot of research is sort of some, one of these practices of mindfulness, of kind of mindfully accepting the fact that you're feeling a little bit uncertain. Um, the, the meditation expert, Tara Brock, actually has a wonderful acronym for how to deal with this, um, which she calls RAIN. Um, which is an acronym, an acronym for recognize, you know, I'm, oh my gosh, I'm feeling so much uncertainty. I really want to know what the answer to this, uh, except just to be like, okay, that's uncertainty. I'm going to deal with it. Uh, investigate, which is fun for the scientists on this call, because it means you kind of like, what does the uncertainty feel like? Well, it makes my head kind of tense or it makes my chest, you know, kind of feel not good. And then the end is what she calls nurture, um, which is, is trying to engage this emotion, self-compassion, which there's lots of research suggesting self-compassion can be incredibly powerful for things like burnout and so on. But the nurture is just you say, okay, this sucks that I'm feeling uncertainty. You know, let me just kind of be with it and it's okay. Like, and, and so, so it sounds kind of, you know, a little cheesy, but the, this process of kind of recognizing our emotions, particularly uncertainty, can be really powerful um, in, in all these cases where we don't have a government that's able to say at this point, like, hey, we're going to get out on May 11th or whatever it is. Um, I think even if, you're, if your own situation is feeling very uncertain, there are things you can do to regulate that emotion in your body and in your mind. Great. So I'll go to a question from one of our uh, viewers. Um, and this is probably good for everybody. We'll start with Mark. Uh, what are the changes that we're making now that we should keep doing forever, even when this has passed? That's an interesting question. Um, and it, we can think about it on many levels. I mean, I think on the, on the behavioral side, uh, good hygiene is good for flu and it's good for colds and it's good for all sorts of infections. And, if we can keep that, uh, you know, it's remarkable. If you were, if you went to Asia within ten years of the SARS epidemic, you would find people um, using much better hygiene in bathrooms, uh, you know, to to avoid touching uh, things, and you would find people wearing masks when they were sick, and and all of that may be positive. Um, I think it's also worth thinking about sort of what are the uh, larger scale changes we can make. And I would start with one thing that uh, I happen to know about because my wife's a teacher um, and, and our kids were in a Boston public school for, for a number of years. Uh, and in both where she worked and where they attended, there was no soap in the bathrooms ever. I mean, it just was not there. Um, and uh, that has been maybe fixed in Boston due to an expose from the, from the newspaper. But, um, you know, I think more generally there are lights being shine, shown on many forms of inequality in our society uh, that manifest as no soap in the bathroom of an under-resourced public school or, um, uh, and my wife's now an education professor, so I've been hearing her talk about this uh, even this morning, you know, aspects of inequities in uh, access to technology and other things. So I think that the people knew about, but were sort of not focused on for various reasons and are now more focused on. So I think it is an opportunity to realize that, uh, that some of the ways we've set up society, uh, that, that create inequities now also create inequities that are directly life-threatening, uh, and to try to use that new focus to, to fight them. Yeah. Laurie, you have anything to add to that? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm actually optimistic. I think we're engaging in lots of behaviors right now that would be helpful to continue psychologically once we're done this crisis. Um, one of those is just the kind of way that we're sort of prioritizing and focusing on social connection. You know, so we know that loneliness has been a problem all around the world and that loneliness is increasing. And I think this moment where we can't, you know, go next door to see our neighbors directly has allowed folks to start harnessing technologies like Zoom, like the one we're using right now, um, to, to connect and to meet up with other folks. Again, not just for work, but for informal kinds of things, you know, getting dinner with friends across different time zones or, you know, doing a yoga class with your mom, you know, who's like hours away. Um, these are things we have to do now to promote our social connection because we don't have a chance to do the in-person stuff. But they're incredibly valuable techniques for folks who might be otherwise isolated or lonely. And I think the fact that we're developing these habits now are going to become incredibly powerful once this is over because these are the kinds of things we can keep up. Uh, there's also great evidence that being in a strange situation like this where your routine is changed around and your your whole daily life is changed around, that can be a great time to form new habits. Um, there's some lovely work by Katie Milkman at uh, Wharton Business School on what's called the fresh start effect, which is these sort of different temporal moments in our lives when everything changes. It turns out is a really good time to start a new habit. And so, you know, with the caveat that there's a lot going on and not everybody can, you know, start a great new fitness habit during a pandemic, but you know, if you're in a position to try out a new habit, you know, this is a good time to make one of those stick. And so I actually feel like there, we can be optimistic that there are lots of things we might want to start doing now that could stick afterwards um, that could make this pandemic uh, worthwhile. Um, we hear a lot about post-traumatic stress in the context of psychology, but there's also equally large effects of post-traumatic growth where the kinds of skills and resilience we develop during a really awful time can stick with us and can promote better habits later on. Great, thanks. Arnaud, anything to add? A, a, a few comments. I mean, the I think we have also learned a, a new way of working. I mean, the we are now all addicted to our uh, video conferences and, and in uh, collaborative research, I find it actually working reasonably well. Um, we have, I there is a new sense and spirit of scientific collaboration, you know, in these times of crisis with the sharing of information, which I think works extremely well. And, and we all see the benefit of it, you know? We are always anxious about, well, our findings or whatever, but the dynamic we have created by sharing information not only is very important because of the crisis and how we solve it, but also because we see the benefit of sharing information and collaboration that is uh, not only collective, but also individual. And that I think is really nice. Um, other thing which I wanted to mention is the, uh, some forms of solidarity which has been established. You know, I just take the example of my building here. We know that there are some um, old people living alone. We have arranged that we can do their shopping for them. We have been careful for whatever. And I hope that those sort of new links we have created, you know, and I'm sure that exist in other forms elsewhere, uh, will be maintained to a certain extent after the crisis. Last point I wanted to make is the incredible image of heroes that the people working in hospital have gained in this crisis. I mean, it's probably the same in the States, but in France, at 8 p.m., we all open the windows and we clap, you know, like that, for five minutes just to thank them. And it's a nice gesture, first of all, because we can see our neighbors, and also because we can just um, tell how um, grateful we are to them for what they are doing. They have been asking for the past 10 years, you know, to work in better conditions in hospitals and everything like that. I don't tell you about the salaries of nurses in France, which are incredibly low. And I believe that as a result of this crisis, although the, pay, the country is broke, 
if there is one place where more attention will be paid is for, for healthcare workers in many different ways. And finally, maybe also for research. You know, I mean, I know that promises are made during time of crisis about funding for research. Um, and we know that it doesn't last usually after, but this crisis is certainly more severe than previous ones. And hopefully this time, uh, at least for France, we have understood uh, how weak our public health agencies had become because of uh, financial restrictions and how important research can be in this time of crisis. So I hope all those lessons will be kept for the future. Great. So um, I'm anxious to hear what all three of you think about this, because this is something I've been working with myself. I mean, we're most of the people viewing this would be our, our scient other scientists. And we're all trained to absorb quantitative information and technical information. And, uh, you know, I, I know for me being, it's an extraordinary privilege to be the editor in chief of science. I see things come in before uh, they hit the wire. Um, and I always struggle with how much of, how I relay that to uh, people who aren't scientists, who aren't quite as well prepared to absorb the information uh, as we are. So I uh, guess I'd ask uh, Mark and then Arnaud to, t to tell us how you're managing that. And then Laurie, maybe to reflect on what we can do to help uh, bring people up to kind of where, where science is in terms of what we know, what we know. So, uh, Mark, let's start with you. Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot and, and writing about it actually some as well. Um, uh, I, it seems to me that the, the sort of first principles that I've suggested to trainees who are going on CNN for the first time or something are, um, first of all, to be very clear about what you do know uh, and and explain it properly but simply and also equally clear about what either you don't know because it's not your field or or um, or what the world doesn't know because it's just not known yet and not to try to falsely reassure not to try to talk outside one's expertise but to try to stick to to what one understands um, and in a crisis like this at the beginning especially there's huge amounts of uncertainty, not just due to our individual ignorance, but our, but because we just, as a society, haven't learned things. So uh, in 2009, it was very admirable how our CDC uh, leaders were out there every day saying, here's what we know, here's what we don't know, here's what we're trying to do to find out. Uh, that has been not true this time, uh, rather famously in the United States. But, um, but I think academics and other scientists uh, outside of the federal government, uh, including state government scientists, are kind of picking up the that role of trying to explain, uh, you know, what is the state of knowledge and how is it going to change? And I think uh, I found it a really interesting opportunity to try to educate people about the scientific method and the notion that when the data change, your your understanding of the world changes, and that's that's a success, not a failure. Um, so I think those are some of the principles. There's a lot more to say. Um, but I think uh, I wrote a little piece in the Scientific American blog with Bill Hannage about how to report on on this. And, and one of the ideas was, you know, there are some things that happen. There's a difference between what happens ever and what happens enough to matter. So, you know, there's all these individual reports of, oh, someone was infectious for 28 days. And that may or may not be correct individually. 
but but trying to deal with the extremes and the individual data points is not the not how public health works. It's not how any decision making works on a bulk scale. You have to deal with what is typical. So yeah. those are some ideas. Great. Arnaud? Um among the scientific community, I think I really for the first time have used um different tools like Twitter, for instance, um, like I had never in the past, and it has been incredibly useful. So Mark should know that I read his uh, tweets uh, very regularly, probably first thing I do in the morning. I have 10 people that I'm just uh, following. I myself do not tweet for reasons which I don't have to explain here, but basically I I find it extremely useful to to, to follow the... um, and to see these very lively discussions, you know, on a recent paper on... uh, uh, it's quite unique, I think, for all of us. There are also many other ways of sharing information which have become possible and, again, which make our life uh, as a scientist uh, very uh, much easier at a time where there is such an abundance you know, of, of information coming from many different parts. The difficulty um, we experience in France, and I believe it's probably the same in the States, is um, the negative role of some social networks. And... Um, the spread of rumors uh, for um, fake ideas, whatever is in whatever is in 